Good afternoon, everybody. If it's your first time here, I'm Alvin. I'm lead pastor here at the church. Uh, that was my dad on the screen and my sister and my nephew. Um, but I'm glad to be here. I'm really excited. I was driving here, excited to be here. Um, we are closing out the month of August. Uh, summer is ending. Is, is it officially over? What's the last day of summer? That's right. We, we still got September. All right, sweet. Um, but yeah, end of August, um, last installment of our series, um, before we get into the series, work it out, I want to do our declaration before the message, so repeat these words after me, it's kind of our prayer before we get into the word. Say, the word of God is the bread of life. May my heart conceive it and my life achieve it. The more I give life, the more I'll receive. And the more I live life, the more I'll believe. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right. So we've prayed, we've declared, we're ready to hear the word. Uh, the series is called Work It Out. And Work It Out is uh, inspired by a passage written to the church of Philippi. In, in, in Greece, and it's the Philippian church, and there's this passage that we've been really unpacking over the month, and it's a very rich passage. We probably could talk about it all year, but we've been talking about it this month, and it's in the second chapter of Philippians, uh, verse 12 through 15. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So the it in work it out is our salvation. We are studying and learning how to take our salvation, something that is a spiritual transaction, something that we've received by faith, something that started on the inside of us and working it to where it's outside of us. Let's talk further on how, it do, how to do that. It says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do, that's the outward part, for his good pleasure. It says, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So aside from just pleasing the Lord and doing the right thing, there is a purpose to working out our salvation. The scripture says that when we find ways to get our salvation from the inside of us to the outside of us, it serves a very important purpose in context to the world that we're in. Paul describes our generation as crooked and perverse. And if we want to make an impact on this crooked and perverse generation, there's a code of conduct we must subscribe to. There is a way of living we must adhere to if we want to serve our purpose as lights in this dark world. The alternative is just to not be a light. 
if you don't work out your salvation, then we forfeit our purpose of, of impacting and counteracting this crooked and perverse generation that was around back in the Bible days, and Lord knows it's still around today. Um, I want to focus on one passage. It says, do all things without complaining and disputing. Do all things without complaining and disputing. This is a, a, uh, a very interesting command um, for the church. The faithless would say that it's an impossible command. It's an impossible request. Uh, but the faithful would say it's possible, but it's, it's difficult. It's interesting. And the reason why is because our life is full of things to complain about. And our life is full of things to dispute about. Our life is filled with trials, tribulation, suffering, pressure, disappointments, self-denying moments, humbling situations, testing times, uncomfortable circumstances, chastisement, affliction. It's a very interesting command to a church that has a life filled with all these things to go through all of it without complaining or disputing. Again, the faithless would say this is impossible. The faithful would say it's possible, but I'm going to need help. Right? Psalm 34, verse 19 through 21 says, Many, not a little, but many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Verse 20, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction, check this out, affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. All right, let me explain this. Affliction, for those of you who aren't uh, familiar, affliction is anything that causes pain and suffering. Affliction is anything that causes pain and suffering. And the Bible says that many afflictions come to the righteous. So the same Bible that is saying that our life is filled with affliction is the same Bible that says to do all of it without complaining and disputing. So saying don't complain and don't dispute is not saying that everything is going well. In fact, it's scriptural that our lives are filled with things that aren't going well. However, it is saying to not complain and dispute about it. My question is why? Why is it the command of the Lord for us to go through our afflictions, go through our pain, go through our suffering without complaining, without disputing? And it's in Psalms 34. It says trials or afflictions for the wicked destroy them. It says it slays the wicked. Affliction slays the wicked. Trials slay the wicked. Disappointments slay the wicked. But trials for the righteous produce God's glory. Afflictions, disappointments, setbacks, 
pain, according to the scripture, destroys those who are wicked. If you're wicked and you go through a disappointment, you're ruined. If you're wicked and you go through a trial, you're done. But the scripture says that if you're righteous and you go through the same things, it actually produces a quality of God's glory in and through your life. So when I say to not complain, it doesn't mean that I'm expecting you to enjoy your affliction. Because affliction, by definition, is painful. Affliction, by definition, is, is suffering. But for the righteous, we must understand the purpose of the affliction, the purpose of the trial. And when your mind comprehends the purpose of the affliction, it causes you to go through it very differently than those who are wicked. I have an example. I used this a couple of years ago, actually. And it's a clip, if we can set it up. And it's a good analogy of showing what afflictions uh, can do for those who are righteous. Let's pay attention to the screen. Hello, my name is Majd, and I'm one of the guides at Nazareth Village. We are standing in our fully functioning replica of a first century olive press. We are entering the rainy season at the moment, uh, November and December, and this is the olive season, so our villagers already started harvesting the olives off of the trees, and we bring them in here in order to press them. Uh, of course, olives are hard. You cannot just press them right away. Uh, the first thing you do in the process is crushing them. And that's why we use this big stone over here. Uh, Mosey, the donkey, is helping us move the stone around. And this stone will crush the olives and the pits. Everything needs to be crushed so finely until it turns into paste. And then it's ready for the next uh, stage of pressing. The crushed olives then are placed in baskets like the one you see over here. We're hanging it on the wall, but of course you lay it flat and then there are pockets to the sides where you put the crushed olives, preparation for uh, the, the actual pressing process. And then you take about 10, 15 baskets to press them together at the press. Now the baskets are brought over here and stacked on top of each other. Underneath them, there's a hole in the ground that is about two feet deep, and it gets also a bit wider as it goes in. So as you press the baskets over here, oil is gonna gather underneath. The beaver board sits on top of the baskets, applying its weight as pressure, and then the three weights, the stone weights, are lifted using pulleys and leverage uh, in order to apply more pressure on top of the baskets. Each group of baskets gets pressed three times. The first time you apply pressure, you get the best quality oil. And according to the Jewish law, the first of your fruits you offer to God. So the oil from the first pressing, they will not use at home. They will take it to the temple in Jerusalem. The second time they applied pressure, they got good quality oil, and it was used for food, medicine, perfume, and cosmetics. By the time they got to the third pressing, though, the quality of the oil was really bad, uh, and they would use it for oil lamps and making soap. The olive press has a very strong connection with Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane comes from two Hebrew words, Gat Shmanim, and they literally mean press of oils. And the olive press is a great illustration of the pressure that Jesus was under as he was praying in Gethsemane, to the point he even started sweating blood. And he prayed three times, an equal number to the pressings. And even Isaiah 53 says he was crushed for our iniquities. A little revelation there. Okay. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7 through 12. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 
verse 7 through 12, and it connects to that analogy. Paul says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. So the reason why we don't complain and don't dispute as we are being hard-pressed by life's trials is because according to the scripture, if indeed we are righteous, we are manifesting the life of Jesus in and through our lives. Just like the olive press, it's, the olive was filled with oil, but for the oil to get out, it must be pressed. It must be squished. It must go under pressure. And the beautiful thing about salvation, remember I told you it was an internal work? When you receive Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is deposited in you. The oil, uh, a symbol of the Holy Spirit in Scripture is oil. So everyone who becomes saved receives the very oil of God. And that's a great miracle, especially compared to what was in us before. We had sin, we had the devil, we had all these bad things inside of us, and then we received the oil of God. And that's the miracle, right? And that's so sweet, and that's fun, and that's why we celebrate. Until we realize that the only way for the oil to get out is for us to be pressed. We love the miracle that God's oil has been poured inside of us. We are filled with the Holy Spirit until we realize that the only way for that oil to get out is through severe pressing. The reason why Paul says to not complain and dispute when this pressing happens is because complaints and dispute disputes pour out something, but it's not the oil of God. It's our humanity. Now, humanity in the right context is not a bad word. But for the vessels who have been appointed and commissioned to exude the oil of God, when we exude humanity only, we are not in our purpose. Our purpose as vessels 
with this treasure is to let the oil of God come out. But when we complain and dispute, we're letting our humanity out. Again, humanity in the right context is fine. But when humanity is coming out, when the oil of God is supposed to be coming out, we have a problem. Humanity and God are not the same. To be godly is to be like God. I want to talk about who we are in case you didn't know. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 through 20. I love how it starts off because I think it applies to this room. It says, or do you not know? In case you didn't know, your body, for those who are righteous. Now, if you're not righteous, if your faith is not in Jesus, this scripture doesn't apply to you yet. But my prayer is that after this message, you will be counted in this number of righteous. If, you're, if, you, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then by definition, you are considered righteous. And for those of you who are righteous, it says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And then it says, you are not your own, for you were brought, bought, sorry, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So before you receive the Holy Spirit, before you receive this oil, you are empty. Scripture says you're dead on the inside. So when you're pressed and you're empty, your humanity is the only thing that you have. So your humanity is the only thing that can come out when you're hollow, when you're empty, when you don't have the Holy Spirit and you're pressed, that's the hum humanity is the only thing that can come out because that's all you have. You're a hollow shell until you receive the Holy Spirit. When you receive Jesus, you have oil that's put inside of you. Yeah, that's, we are uh, hollow humans without the Holy Spirit. We are hollow humans without the Holy Spirit. But when you are filled with the Spirit, you are no longer hollow, but you're a temple, a vessel, a container for God's life. You know, you're no longer hollow when you have Jesus. Now you are a temple filled with the Holy Spirit. And this, is, again, is a great thing, but it's not good news for your humanity because every hollow human that receives the Holy Spirit, their humanity receives a, a demotion. In Christ, your humanity, which is your mind, your soul, your emotions, your body, your humanity is demoted from your substance to your shell. It is demoted from your content to your container. Before you have Jesus, your humanity is your substance. Before you have Jesus, your humanity is your content. But when you receive Jesus, your humanity receives a demotion. And the reason why I use demotion, because when you're used to being the substance and you're now told that you're just a shell, that doesn't feel good. When you're used to being the content and now you're nothing but the container, which is still important, but it's nothing compared to the content. It feels like a demotion, and that's the cross that Christians have to bear. 
we have to cross, we have to carry this cross of what used to be all we had is nothing but a container for something else now. Our substance has now become our shell. Our content has now become a container for new content. Our shell is now holding another substance, and that's this oil. That's this spirit of God's life, something that we did not have before. What used to be the cereal is now just the bowl. What used to be the show is now just the stage. What used to be the oil is now just the olive. There's purpose in our pressing. And I want to talk a little bit about, um, well, when you're pressed, what's happening, two things are happening. Every time you're pressed by affliction, your humanity is being demoted. Your flesh and who you are as a person is, 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 is moving to the back seat, and the Spirit of God is moving to the front seat. That's why it doesn't feel good, but that's why we still endure it because we know it's good. Every time we're afflicted, every time we go through pain or suffering, it is an opportunity for the humanity to move back and for the spirit of God to come up. That's what happens when you press. Like, think about a sponge. When you squeeze a sponge, the sponge is, is coming in and the water is coming out. When you have an whenever you're pressing something, let's say it's a waterbed with a hole in it. The bed that holds the water is what? It's going what? Down, and the water that's in the bed is coming out. So every time we're afflicted, our humanity is going down, and the oil of God is coming out. Which is why it says don't dispute, don't fight it when it's happening. Don't complain when it's happening because you're interrupting the process of God's oil coming out of you. Every time that we complain and dispute during an opportunity for God's oil to come out, we abort the process. The more we understand the purpose of our pressing, the less we will self-preserve. I want to talk about self preservation for a couple of minutes. There's a reason why self-preservation is no longer the method of life for the believer. Self-preservation is a very human, innate quality that we have for survival. It's a very primal thing. Any mammal, any instinct, in, in, instinct, oh, insect, sorry, any insect we all have this thing called self-preservation. Self-preservation, again, in context, is not bad. Self-preservation is the part of you that realizes that if you see um, a den of lions to not go in the middle of the den. Uh, Self-preservation is the part of you that when you eat a certain food and it makes you break out in hives, you don't want to eat that anymore. Self-preservation is the part of us that enables us to survive. However, another cross that Christians have to bear 
is that when we receive Jesus, we make the mistake oftentimes of mistaking our self-preservation instincts with the leading of the Holy Spirit. Before Jesus, all we had was that self-preservation instinct that keeps us alive. But when you receive Jesus, you graduate from I preserve myself to God preserves me. And we think that's an easy transition, but some of us don't realize the very thing that we are calling God's preservation is still just an extended self-preservation. Many of us are preserving ourselves under the assumption that we have handed over the preservation responsibility to God. So what happens is we still depend on those same animal instincts to keep ourselves alive, not knowing that we're blocking God's ability to preserve us. Scripture says if you try to preserve your life, you're going to lose it. Jesus says when you lose your life, that's when you get it. It's a transition. And it's difficult, but that's why I'm trying to educate us. In case you're in this room still depending on your self-preservation skills, meanwhile, you're forfeiting something greater than self-preservation. What self-preservation does is it delays our transformation. Self-preservation delays our transformation. When you are righteous, you are called to be transformed, which means you go from one form to the next. The Holy Spirit transforms lives. But transformation sets off all of our self-preservation triggers. Because there is a death happening. When you are transformed, your former form is dying so that you can become a new form. But your self-preservation signals go off and say, abort, 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 abort. Because self-preservation is designed to keep you alive. Self-preservation is designed to keep you alive. So when God is trying to transform you, you can't be transformed until your former form dies. Which is why we must understand what self-preservation is actually doing. It's keeping your old self alive and preventing from your new self to be born. Which is why Jesus says you must be born again. Because the first form has to die. And if you don't understand that, then you'll yield to your self-preservation and maintain and protect your life, not knowing that all you're doing is hindering the new life that the Holy Spirit is trying to produce in you.
Self-preservation delays our transformation. I'm going to add one more thing. It delays the transformation of others. As long as you remain and protect your former form, not only you delay your transformation, but you delay every transformation that's supposed to happen through your transformation. When we are transformed, it inspires transformation in others. And the tragedy of self-preservation in the body of Christ is because we think that we're preserving our life and only delaying our own transformation, but there are thousands of transformations that we're delaying simply because we don't know how to handle those self-preservation survival triggers and signals that we've been conditioned to live by. It's a new thing, guys. When you receive Jesus, it's a new world. Scripture is not over, it is not exact, it's not an exaggeration that you're a new creation. And again, we embrace it on the surface until we realize that for the new creation to start, the old creation has to die. We love hearing that we've been made new until we realize that the old person has to go. And we like the old things going when it comes to our shame, when it comes to our guilt. We love the idea of that stuff dying. But when it comes to our personality and our ways and our this is how I do things and this is my thing, the things of us that we're actually proud of, just so you guys know, there are aspects of your old life that you're proud of. Not all of your old life to you is bad. You have to have a revelation to get to where Paul is. Paul says, every single thing about me before Jesus is rags. I don't think many of us are willing to say that. I think we think parts of us were rags, the parts of us that did bad things. But the humanity in us, humanism is deception because it glorifies humanity at the expense of God. Because, again, humanity is not bad in and of itself, but when it's glorified at the expense of God, it becomes corrupt. Christianity is the magnifying of Jesus at the expense of our humanity. Complaining is a form of self-preservation. Disputing is a form of self-preservation. Escaping is a form of self-preservation. Rebelling is a form of self-preservation. Lying is a form of self-preservation. Delaying is a form of self-preservation. Retaliating is a form of self-preservation. And as the people of God who were called to lose ourselves for Jesus. Everything that you do that protects yourself runs the risk of forfeiting the oil that's wanting to get out. Because the oil, think about guys, it's just science. Sponges. A sponge can be full of water, but it's not until it is squeezed that the water gets out. If sponges can't even escape What makes you think the church 
If we want the water, the holy water, the oil, the content that's been poured inside of us to get out, if you expect. Now, I'm speaking to people who want God to use their lives. Honestly, this is kind of where the cutoff happens. Because if you don't, if it's not a priority for you, for the glory of God to be extracted from your life, then everything I'm about to say is totally irrelevant. All I'm speaking to those who want the oil to get out who want the glory of God that's been deposited in you to get out of you. If that's you, don't complain, don't dispute. If you complain and you dispute, you're sending a message that you'd rather protect yourself than for the glory of God to be extracted from your life. Losing our lives for God will gain life for us and our enemies. Losing our lives for God will gain life for us and our enemies. And the reason why I'm saying enemies is because you dispute your enemies. Even in the context of brothers or friends, it's a match. The minute you dispute, you have an opponent, just so you know that. Dispute by nature is to oppose somebody else. We got this guy in the, this corner of the boxing match. We got this guy in the corner of the boxing match. Anytime you believe that you have an opponent, then you are at the brink of what we call a dispute. And the word is saying don't do it. Because when you yield and you allow the pain of that humanity, all those clapbacks that you could say, all those insults that you could give back, all those ways you could put that person in their place after you start feeling all that humanity, all that, oh, I could do this, I could take them, I know I could take them, oh my God, I got so much stuff I could say against them, oh, I could make them feel like they're such an idiot. As that stuff starts to go back, the life of God gets to come forward. And it will not only give you life, but it will bless the person that you were about to oppose. God's way is better than our way. And it's different than ours, too. I think it's important for us to acknowledge that regularly, that God's way is different. I think different sometimes for us might be even more beneficial than saying better because some of us make our ways synonymous with God. And if we think our ways are just like God, then we think that we're doing the better way when we operate out of our flesh. Because we're like, God's way is better and I'm godly. I'm a Christian. So clearly, the way I should go about this is better because I'm a Christian. It's not automatic like that. <laughs> Being a Christian doesn't automatically make you obedient. Being a Christian doesn't automatically make you still have to make a conscious decision every time. Your Christian status does not allow you to be in cruise control and just find yourself responding the way God will respond. Christians must realize that even though I've been washed by the blood, I still have a way that's different than God's way. And we must choose every day to restrict and press back and all the things that will make every self-preservation signal in you go off the charts. You're going to have to endure it. I'm telling you now, some of y'all self-preservation, fight-or-flight tendencies are going to go through the roof. But don't fret. You will not die. 
You might feel like you are, well, the nature of you is dying, but you're not dying, okay? So don't call 911. Don't freak out. If your flesh is riling up, it's not, it, it means it's happening the way it's supposed to happen. That's a good thing. You know when you have a, a sore and you put peroxide on it and it bubbles up? That means it's doing its work, right? We don't go, oh, my God, it's bubbling up. It's bubbling up. Oh, my God, it's bubbling up. We go, it's working. But when our flesh bubbles up and our flesh starts to get agitated, we, 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 we mistake it for death. When it's actually life, even though it's death, it's death to the wrong things in you, but it's life for the healing. You know, when, 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 you, when you put the peroxide, the infections are dying. But healing is happening. And I feel like I have to let you, especially y'all young, young guys, I got to let you guys know, don't think something is wrong if your flesh is bubbling and it's angry and it's agitated because the infection is dying. The infection is dying and healing is breaking forth. When you feel like your humanity, oh, my God, I feel like I can't do anything. I feel like I'm trapped. I feel like I'm stuck. Oh, my God. Guys, trust me. That's just your flesh trying to throw a tantrum so you can give into it again. Trust me, recognize a flesh temper tantrum. The sooner you can recognize flesh temper tantrums, the sooner you can stop being fooled by them. When you obey God, by nature, your flesh is going, no, please, you can't live without me. And so often we go, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. And we self-preserve. We save our flesh. We save our humanity. And we go, oh, that was close. That was close. Oh, for a second I thought I was about to die. Oh, that's so close. And we go, we, we, we medicate. Oh, there's the, there's the liquor. There's the porn. There's, oh, that was close. That was close. There's the gossip. There's the complaint. There's the Facebook post. Oh, that was close. Oh, for a second, I thought I was about to die. Oh. Meanwhile, the glory of God that's in you is going, maybe next week. Maybe next week I'll get out of her. Maybe next year I'll finally be able to show myself in the light of day. outside Instead of in the coldest cave of this person's heart. This person hasn't let me out once. Because every time your humanity is threatened, the signals go up, self-protect, fight or flight, preserve. And while we save ourselves, we forfeit God's glory. There's too many examples of that, guys. We're doing that too much. There's too much self-preservation happening in the body of Christ. There's too much self-preservation happening in the body of Christ. And while your flesh and your humanity feels valued, the Spirit of God in you feels so neglected. And we have to make a choice of which one it's going to be. The Bible is very clear that our humanity... And God can't both be up front. One, that's how they're, they're mutually exclusive. And yes, I'm using humanity and even more so than flesh because 
there's, a, there's, I don't know, humanity is turning into this back door. Demons are easily, we're like, okay, that's bad. Flesh, we're like, okay, I've, I've been in church for a while. I know that the flesh, okay, I didn't know what the flesh was before church, but okay, I, I've been in church for a while. I know the flesh is bad. But humanity still is harmless in most of our eyes. Harmless at the worst. Godly at best. Humanism makes humanity and godly synonymous. And if anyone must, re if anyone has to know that that's not true, it's got to be the church. The church has to know how to call it out. We can't be fooled to think that our humanity and God are like working together. The Bible makes it very clear that they hate each other. The flesh and spirit, everything the flesh wants to do, the spirit wants to do the opposite. There, there, there is no agreement. Perfect example, our, our fellow human, uh, Peter. Peter, let's read it. I got a little time. Matthew chapter 16. Most of y'all know this. Matthew chapter 16, 15 through 17. He, Jesus, said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood, the part of you that's human, has not revealed this to you. But my father, who is not your humanity and is in heaven. Same guy that spoke out of the spirit of God. A few verses down, three verses down. Everyone say three verses down. Basically, it doesn't have to be a drastic encounter for you to switch gears, which is why the word says to do this with fear and trembling. It says work out your salvation with fear and trembling because you can speak a revelation of God and three verses down do this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. So again, we suffer because our Lord suffered, right? From the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And be killed on the third day, and on the third day be raised. Verse 22, and Peter, he took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, human. Get behind me, humanity. Get behind me, reasonable emotions that someone would have if their friend was about to die. Understandable thoughts and feelings. It says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Remember I told you the sponge, it's hindered unless it's squeezed. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of the devil, the things of demons, the things of man. Humanity is not as innocent as this culture wants us to think that it is. We cannot coddle it. We cannot glorify it. We must allow it to be pressed, not because we love pain, not because we're some sick people that just like to not feel good, but we have learned, according to the word of God, that if the humanity in us is not pressed down, then the glory of God 
cannot get forward. Peter's response to Jesus was a very human response. None of us would call that a demonic response. For your best friend who's innocent, do you know how unjust it is for Jesus to be arrested, let alone killed? Let me just stop. Do you all realize how relatable Peter's response was? Who of the human race would not object to their best friend, someone who they know is the best man I've ever met in my life. All you've done is helped people. They want to arrest you. They want to kill you over my dead body. Jesus, I love you. Imagine the offense. That Peter felt when he was responding out of something so genuine, something so human, something so loving, and being called Satan. Peter wasn't Satan, but he was operating out of his humanity. And when we operate out of humanity, we are partnering with the devil. For instance, me and my dad are not the same people, but we're for the same cause. So we're therefore on the same team. I'm very different from my dad, but we're on the same team. So we operate as one. Your humanity is not Satan, but your humanity has the same objective as Satan, and that is to prevent the glory of God, to prevent the will of God. So Peter wasn't Satan, but he was wanting the same thing that Satan wanted, and that is for Jesus not to go on that cross. That is for him to not shed his blood. That is for him to not be resurrected, and that is for us to not be saved. This is why the Bible says that human wisdom derives from demons because it serves the same purpose. Stop the will of God. Stop the will of God. Every time we operate out of humanity, we are operating out of the same team objective to stop the will of God, which is why. But the dilemma is we're still human. Great, Alvin, you've told me about my humanity is partners with Satan, but yet we're still humans. What do we do? First Corinthians, Paul says you guys are talking like you're only human. When the church says I'm only human, you sure about that? You sure you want to say that? Paul says you guys are talking like you're merely human. Notice when I said the substance turns to the shell, I didn't say the substance goes away. The substance takes a new role. When you're a human, when you're a human who's a Christian, your humanity doesn't go away, but your humanity takes on a new role. And it's no longer the substance that's supposed to be expressed, but it's the container 
for the substance of God. So for someone who goes, oh, my God, Alvin just told me my humanity is demonic, but I'm still a human. Does that mean I'm demonic? Not necessarily. If you give your humanity a new assignment, your humanity has to receive a different job. And, yes, it is a demoted job. Your humanity must now become a vessel for God's glory. The Bible says that when we receive Jesus, our humanity becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. So I'm not downing your humanity. Well, I am. I'm not doing away with your humanity. I'm downing it for it to become something else. And that is the carrier of the presence of God. That is the substance that allows God's glory to permeate through. And every day we have to ask ourselves, has my humanity gotten out of place? Has me as Alvin Love III become more than just a container for God? Anytime Alvin Love becomes the substance, I have canceled I've changed my job description from shell to substance. Anytime whatever your name is becomes what you exude, just so you know, you couldn't take that role without removing the Spirit of God from his role. The Holy Spirit is not a shell for us. The Holy Spirit is not a container for you. The Holy Spirit is not a stage or a platform for you, who, who do we think we are? We're the containers for him. We're the shell for him. We're the platform for him. If you have any notoriety, if you have any influence in your life, you are nothing but a set stage for a greater glory. Well, I don't want to be churchy, Albert. I just don't want to be churchy. I don't want to be, I, I got to relate. You know, I got to. As much as you rationalize it, as much as you churchify it, all you've done is given yourself a job description that you were never meant to have. And you've taken the one that had that job description and moved him back to where you support me, God. I don't support you. Every time we complain and dispute, every time we operate out of this thing called humanity, we have made ourselves the substance, which means God can't be the substance because he says he will not share. That's one thing about God. Take it or leave it. Y'all might think it's not cool or he's not collaborative enough, but he does not share. God goes, I will not share my glory with any of y'all. I love you. I created you, but I'm not sharing my glory with you. He says, no flesh will glory in my sight. Not an ounce of your humanity. And yes, I know it sounds like, how could he love me but say that? But I mean, deal with it. You have to swallow this pill. You have to swallow the pill that there's a God who loves you but still refuses to share his glory with your flesh. You are a vessel for him, 
And as long as that's not good enough for you, God, it's not good enough for you. And I had to give it to you that plainly because I know how deceptive humanism is. And it is infiltrating the church. It already has. We look more like non-believers than we look like believers. We talk more like unbelievers than we talk like believers. I'm telling you, I promise you, if there, I can tell you right now, if there was a spectrum of God and people, most of our church, including me, is too much like people. we got to be more like God. But we can't be like God unless we're willing to stop being like people. Because, again, we are human, but we're not merely human. We're not only human. We are temples of the Spirit of God. We are the containers for his oil. And that's a beautiful thing, but as long as we resist being pressed, as long as we miss opportunities to be pressed, and self-preserve, keep doing it if you want. But if you want God's glory to come out, you're not going about it the right way. You have to endure it. Paul and Silas endured it. Paul and Silas arrested for helping people. Talk about injustice. Talk about injustice. Righteous. Love God, fasting, praying, arrested. Did they fight? Did they call the prisoners out of their name? Did they cuss at them? Did they say, this is not right? They endured it. And not only did they endure it, not only did they not complain, not only did they not dispute, but they praised God. Well, that's just, you know, that's just dismissive. You know, I mean, like, you, you deserve to be upset. You deserve, you deserve to be, you deserve. I mean, this isn't right. You deserve. Why are you praising God? Are you sure? Is this healthy? Is this healthy? You're praising God even though you're going through something bad. That can't be healthy. God loves you. They praised God. The oil got to get out. The oil shook the prison. The prison doors opened. They got set free. Everybody in the prison got set free. And the prisoner got, the, the security guard got saved. Your enemies, guys, we have to realize the scope is bigger than just us. Newsflash. Guys, when God is telling you to not complain and not dispute, he's not, he's not undervaluing your pain. But he goes, but there's another guy called your enemy, called the person who you're mad at, called the person who's inflicting this injustice. And, 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 and if, you, if you do it my way, if you just dare to lose your life, if you just dare not to self-preserve for one week, the very person that's causing you all this anger, causing you all this pain, not only will he let you go, but he'll follow me. Do we want our enemies to be saved? Do we want those who oppress us to be free? 
Do we want those who are being unjust to us to come into the light? Do we want the security guard? Or are we writing a narrative where the security guard gets sent to hell and gets what he deserves? Guys, we have to subscribe to a narrative where the security guard that has unjustly imprisoned us through our conduct and self-restraint comes to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But what we're doing is, let me just throw rocks at him because that's what Jesus would do. Jesus would say, you are this and you are that and you are that. Not my president, not my president, not my president. Do we want the bad guys to be redeemed? And that's really where it boils down to, guys. Let's all face it. We're all the main character of our lives. So I'm going to play with that. I'm going to use that. If we're the main character, then there's a villain. Do we want the villains in our life to be redeemed in the end? In our movies, I love movies, so in our movie, the person who abused you, the person who fired you unjustly, the person who, who, who hates you, the person that, you, that posted that thing about you, or the person that's, do you want the story to end with that person in hell or in heaven rejoicing with you? And the, your answer to that determines the way you live your life. If you want that person, the villain in your story, to end up in hell, getting what they deserve, even though you got exempt from all that you deserve. If you want that person, then keep on fighting them, keep on complaining about them, keep on talking about them, keep on insulting them. If you want them to be redeemed, you've got to subscribe to a different reaction. you got to think about Jesus. That song they sang today, he said, die for the ones, what was it? No, um, scorned by the ones he came to save. Scorned by the ones he came to save. Jesus took every injustice, not because it was right, but because he wanted his enemies, us, to be saved. Paul and Silas behaved in a way in their imprisonment, that the security guard that scorned them was saved. The Hebrew boys in Babylon, for all of you oppressed Christians who don't have rights and are being taken, your rights are being taken away from you, and this is, you know, we're in Babylon and the president is Nebuchadnezzar. Whether Trump or Biden, we basically just traded places. The same people who got so mad that you're dishonoring your president, he is your president, President Trump, are now just dishonoring Biden. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. When the three Hebrew boys we're literally told, not figuratively, not association. This is kind of like another form of bowing down. They told them to literally bow down. And, of course, if you know the story, they didn't do it. But they even while they were 
expressing not doing it. They were still respectful. They still said, your majesty. They didn't say, Neb. <laughs> Look, Neb, we are righteous. For God we live, for God die. Screw you, Neb. They said, your majesty, king, king. We can't do this. We know the repercussions of this. We know this means our death. They didn't fight. This is wrong. We should not be arrested. We should not be killed. This is, uh, this is not right. They said, we know the rules of the city that we're in. And the rules say that if you don't bow down to this idol, you're going to die. King, your majesty, we're not going to bow. So go ahead and send us into the flames. And that was first, that was literally bound down, and that was death. And they took it. Not because it was right, but because if they're not pressed, and if they don't go down and die, God's glory can't show out. So they showed, they proved, they passed the test. They were willing to be pressed, their humanity. Just as noble as the stance it was, this is the rules. We live in Babylon. These are the rules here. So we'll take it. And as they just, God's glory came forward. That's how it works. God's glory wouldn't have come forward if they didn't step back. They stepped back and said, we're going to take it. We're going to take the affliction. We're going to take the injustice. We're going to take how unfair this is. We're going to take, not because we're weak, but because we're vessels. It's not because we're pushovers but we're carriers of the presence of God. And we can't conduct ourselves like we're hollow humans. So let's, let's, let's diminish ourselves. Let's take it. And guys, they threw him in the furnace. You thought it was going to be like, he was like, oh, my God, I want to be saved now. He says, no, turn up the fire. Throw them in more. They threw them in, and they said, we see a fourth person in there. That fourth person is the Spirit of God. That is God. That represents the presence of God. And that fourth man wouldn't have shown up. <laughs> that fourth man would not have shown up if they didn't allow themselves to die. The fourth man only shown up when they were thrown. So we are... The church got to stop resisting being thrown in the fire. You got to stop fighting against your wrong treatments. Because it's not until you take it and die that the fourth man shows up. Their clothes, not only were they not burnt, their clothes didn't smell like smoke. And guess who came to their God? Their enemy. Again, if it's not your objective for the Nebuchadnezzar in your life to come to God, forget what I'm saying. Keep fighting, keep resisting, keep standing up for your rights. But if you want the fourth man to show up, if you want the Spirit of God to come through, you might have to take being thrown into the furnace unjustly for the miracle to happen. And when the miracle happened, Guys, Nebuchadnezzar said, not only am I, all y'all got to bow down to God now. All y'all got to get saved now. 
Like, he made it a decree. All of you guys need to serve their God. Because I know a lot of people with religion, but I don't know many people who take hits like this. I've seen people fight back and cuss back at me and give me scripture and all that stuff. But I've never seen someone just take it. Y'all's God must be real. I've never met a human that can turn the other cheek for me to hit that one too. You think that's self-preservation? If someone slaps you, give them the other one to slap? That's the opposite of self-preservation. Self-preservation is slap me once, I'm out of here. I got another cheek I got to save. Jesus says, give them the other one. Because turns out, it is a very rare trait for a human being to accept affliction without complaints and dispute. And when you accept it, it will allow God's glory to manifest in your life that will make people go, who is your God? I've never seen, even amongst Christians, I've never seen this behavior. Well, you know. We're all figuring it out. We're all growing, but I, I follow Jesus, and that's why I did the way, that's why I handled it the way I did. You're telling me you let me do all that stuff against you and tarnish your name and offend you, and you you still want me to be saved? Yeah. Well, well I want to know that God. Okay. You have a control, you have control over the way your story ends. Or wait, and the way the story ends. Last thing, I promise. I'm sorry. This is good. Are you okay? Okay. Last one. It's just even, it's just even, okay. David, David and King Saul. That's a good one. David and King Saul. Guys, all of this, all these antics, this is me thinking about how far we've strayed. Because I know I'm about to present a standard that is so different from what I've seen with our community. David was under the authority of King Saul. King Saul was corrupt. For all of you who think that if God is your the president has to be a righteous, tongue-talking believer. The Bible is filled with ways to still be godly under ungodly leadership. Do y'all think this is new? The word is full of people under ungodly leadership still called to be godly. David was under a corrupt leader who was jealous of David. And was trying to kill David repeatedly, repeated attempts. Imagine your king trying to literally kill you. I'm not saying arrest you. I'm not saying pull you over. I'm saying literally try to kill you. And he would escape here, escape here, escape here. And God kept on protecting him. And Saul kept on trying to. But then, finally towards the end, David was able to confront Saul. And he didn't flex. He didn't retaliate. He didn't say, how dare you? Do you know who? He said he honored Saul. He honored the king 
that was trying to kill him. Not because he was weak, but he is a vessel. And if he doesn't allow himself to be afflicted, the glory of God can't come through. And he honored him, forgave him, still said that he was anointed. I want to read Samuel's response, and then we're going to close. Remember, I said if you want your enemy, if you want the Nebuchadnezzar in your life, if you want that villain in your life to be redeemed, you've got to go about it a different way. Verse 16, 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 24, 16 through 22. Some of y'all need to hear this because some of you guys, if you, if you, if you, if you repent today, there's a chance that the King Saul in your life might have this response. So it was, when David had finished speaking these words, these words of honor to Saul, that Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up, I mean, even there, my son, all of a sudden, even that posture is different. And Saul lifted up his voice, and y'all, Saul wept. Then he said to David, you are more righteous than I. I'm the kind of righteous where I still tell you off. I'm the kind of righteous where I still fight back. You are more righteous than I. For you have rewarded. Guys, we don't, Christians don't retaliate. We reward. You reward me with good. Whereas I have rewarded you with evil. So even though I treated you bad, you treat me good. You're more righteous than I. Verse 18, and you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me. I tried to kill you I don't know how many times. And you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, when you had a chance to retaliate, when you had a chance to put me in my place, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, I mean, this makes sense. If a man finds his enemy, will he let him Get away safely? Basically, who does that? Who lets their enemy get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Verse 20, and now I know, and this is what we're after, and now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. God, That's God's will. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, and David and his men went up to the stronghold. The next verse, guys, Saul dies. But guys, Saul was able to die knowing that his kids were going to be taken care of. Saul was able to die knowing that his descendants would be safe and that even though he should have brought so many curses to his life, that his debts had been forgiven by the one who he treated the worst. This is how God's glory gets out of us. Let's all stand, please. Father, You have reintroduced to us a standard of what it means to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. Lord, 
we have examples like um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We have examples like Paul and Silas. We have examples like David. But most importantly, we have your example. Because while all of these guys endured terrible affliction, even though it was unjust, all of them still had some kind of sin in their life. Even though it was unjust, even though it wasn't fair, there was still sin in their life. Jesus, what makes you different is you were afflicted, you were imprisoned, you were killed, and you had committed no sin. And yet you endured it, not because you were weak, but you were a vessel for salvation. You were a vessel for deliverance. You were a vessel for breakthrough. You were a vessel for healing. And when your body was torn on the cross, salvation poured out. Healing poured out. Deliverance poured out. Forgiveness poured out. Lord, as much as we admire you for doing that, we see in your word that to admire you is not what you're asking for us to do. But you're asking us to follow you. You're asking us to imitate you. So the same way that you were broken, you're calling us to be broken. The same way that you were falsely accused, you're calling us to be falsely accused. The same way you were treated unfairly, you're calling us to be treated unfairly, not because we're weak, but we are vessels of your salvation. We are vessels of your healing. So as we allow ourselves to go through the pressing of the day, whether it's at work, whether it's in our relationships, whether it's socially, whether it's politically, whatever, Lord, let us endure it without complaining or disputing, knowing that there's something great that's being pressed out of us. And that pressing is not only going to bless us, but it's going to bless the very people who our flesh wants to fight. Give us this revelation, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.